book of Exodus, chapter 34, beginning at verse 29. Exodus 34, 29. Prepare yourself. Starting here, we're going to finish the book tonight. Here we go. Exodus <laughs> 34, 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain. Then Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But when, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil. Until he came out, and whenever he came out, he spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, so that the skin of Moses' face shone. And so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Now I begin this story again. We've studied this a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning. We've seen the glory of the Lord shining on Moses. And we've actually been in process about this whole idea of the glory of the Lord quite a bit over the last few weeks. But I do so by way of reminder. Reminder, first of all, that Moses did not use the veil to hide the reflection of the glory. He used the veil to hide the fading of the glory. It wasn't the reflection he wanted to keep the people from seeing. It was the fading away. It was as it went away. But remember, we are not like Moses. And as we study tonight, it's a clear distinction, it's an important distinction for us as children of God. We're not like Moses. God's intention is not the decrease of His glory in your life, but the increase of His glory. He wants to take us deeper and further with Him. It's not that you come to Christ and you, and you stay in one place, or that it fades away. He wants His glory to grow. 2 Corinthians 3.13 We are not like Moses. He used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And this is what God does. The book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 40, it's, it's a journey. An amazing journey as we have seen and as we have studied so far. From the gloomy brickyards of Egypt to the glorious filling of the tabernacle with the presence of the Lord. And in between, Israel is in process, is in a journey. And that's God's plan. To move you from the gloominess of sin into the glory of His presence. To take the despair away from us and to replace it with Himself. Now, tonight, at times, we're going to have kind of a wild ride through the building of the tabernacle. We've already seen the description of the tabernacle. If you've been here at all over the last, I don't know, six, eight months, you've seen the tabernacle in detail. And what happens in the last five chapters or so of this book is it goes right into the building of the tabernacle and the same exact things that we've already read and already studied are repeated. They're reiterated over and over as the builders now construct and put together and craft the tabernacle. Now, if you're anything like me, and, and some of you may be in this, I ask a lot of questions. I see something like that happen and I think, why? 
Why, with, with the Bible being what it is, I mean, I, I consider this the perfect book, the inerrant Word of God. X number of pages from beginning to end that God has to give His Word to mankind. Why waste time repeating things? As a young pastor, when I would teach, I made up my mind that I was not going to repeat anything. And as I worked on lessons, if I had taught something before, I didn't want to teach it again because I didn't want to become repetitive or come across as repetitive. But I was wrong. There is wisdom of God in the repetitive nature of things in the Bible. First and second Kings. When we get there, we'll read through, we'll study it. Then we'll come to First and Second Chronicles and you'll start to say, wait a minute, we heard this story. Hang on a second, we read this. You may even, as we've studied on Wednesday night, seen similar verses come up time and time and time again. John 3.16 is one. How many times have we heard that one? And yet, can I ask you, is there anyone who tires of hearing John 3.16? God uses repetition. I, I want to give you three quick reasons just by way of, of knowing where we're going and understanding where we're going tonight. But as we start out, three reasons why there is so much repetition in Scripture, how God uses it. Rate, reinforcement, and revelation. First of all, repetition increases rate. It increases rate. Now, several times tonight, because we're repeating things, we're going to move on at quite a clip. But that's not the kind of rate I'm talking about. Repetition doesn't just increase the rate of our study, it increases the rate of our comprehension of the Word. As things are repeated and brought back up, things that we have studied before come back to mind, we begin to go, oh yeah, oh, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, that makes sense. And the Word becomes more and more cemented into our hearts and our minds. It gives us a depth in Bible study. Now some of you, if you're here Sunday morning, you may recall me talking about this, coming in shallow. Like Apollo 13, if they came in too shallow, they would bounce right off the edge of the atmosphere and out into outer space and be lost. God doesn't want us to come in shallow. He wants us to go deep. Repetition in the scriptures increases the rate of our deaths. It allows us, helps us to go deeper into God's Word. Recalling things that we've been taught, and then suddenly we see things. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's revelation. But repetition just increases rate. Hebrews 5.13. The Hebrew writer says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Practice. Practice. Now, I'm going to venture a guess here. Rod is into Taekwondo and is actually very good. But I'm going to guess, Rod, that there are certain moves that you practice over and over and over and over. Same move again and again and again. Why? Because it makes the move stronger. It increases the ability. And that's exactly what happens when we repeat things in Scripture that we've already seen before. It increases rate. Repetition also yields reinforcement. Reinforcement. God wants to cement His words in our hearts and in our minds. He wants us to know His words. And therefore, He has constructed His Word, the Bible, in such a way that as we go through it, He repeats things. Oftentimes when things are repeated, they are highly important things, and we would do well to stop and pay attention again. I love what Peter said, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He said, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. 
and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminders. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, he says, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Repetition. Repetition. Peter says it's a good thing. I want to remind you over and over. Well, number three, repetition often results then in revelations. Interesting how we will cover, cover scripture that was covered before, read something we've studied before, and suddenly have those aha moments. Where you're like, I have never seen that before. Well, possibly the reason you didn't see it before is you hadn't been deep enough to recognize it before. But the beautiful repetition of studying the Word of God brings new insights to mind. And the bottom line here, gang, is we need repetition for transformation. So God continues to lay His Scriptures out before us. The Lord understands something, you see, about the distance between His glory and our humanity. The distance between glory and humanity. What do you mean by that? Think about the sun, which we've been blessed to see a lot lately. The sun is brilliant. It's beautiful. Cheryl and I were out walking the other morning, and as we looked up, we saw the moon. And I love that. When you see the moon in the morning, and it's shining high in the sky, and you know it's reflecting the brilliance, the glory, if you will, of the sun. That's what the moon does. It reflects the glory of the sun. The the light bounces off the moon, except, except when the world gets in the way. Now, the sun is still shining just as brightly when we have a lunar eclipse. It's still brilliant. It's still glorious in its heat, in its output of light. And yet, because the world gets in the way, the light doesn't get to the moon and the moon doesn't reflect. And the same thing happens in our lives when the world gets in the way. Oh, God is still glorious. God is still shining. He is still magnificent in all of His glory. But when we allow the world to get in the way, His glory can be eclipsed in our lives. And we don't shine. We don't reflect when the world gets in the way. So God gives us His Word. His Word continues to knock the world out of the way so that we don't experience spiritual lunar eclipse. His glory is always shining. Always shining. And His Word helps keep the world out of the way. Well, with all this in mind, let's finish this great book. Looking at chapter 35, verse 1. Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Repetition, repetition, repetition. This is now the third time that God has returned to the Sabbath and said, You will keep it holy. Keep the Sabbath day. Don't neglect the Sabbath day. But he adds something interesting here. He says something actually very serious here. He says, If you violate the Sabbath, you're going to die. And isn't that true? It's exactly what happens. When we violate the Sabbath, when we refuse the rest that God has invited us to, we die a slow death. We would call it burnout. We would call it spiritual fatigue or physical fatigue when we refuse to take time just for rest. Who can recall, by the way, in the Hebrew what the word Sabbath means? Anybody remember what it means? What the actual translation of the Hebrew word for Sabbath is? It's intermission. It's intermission. 
God wants his people one day of seven to take an intermission on a physical level. He wants them to take it on a physical level because God wired us to need rest. He made our bodies in such a way, constructed us, created us, so that we could have great energy, but we needed rest. At some point our bodies just start to fail us and we've got to stop. And so God comes along with Israel and says, okay, listen, let me make it law for you because you're not doing a real good job taking care of yourselves. One day of seven, stop. One day of seven, rest. Physically, you need it. You know even Jesus got drained? You see various times in his public ministry. One of the most interesting to me, you read in three of the Gospels, Matthew 9, Mark 5, Luke 8. When Jesus was heading out, he was surrounded by throngs of people, and he was heading out with a man named Jairus, who was a synagogue leader whose daughter was dying. And as he rushed along, you remember the story? A a woman, who he didn't know, who had been bleeding for 12 years, hemorrhaging, came up and touched the edge of his cloak. What what does the Bible tell us? Jesus turns around and stops because he felt power drain out of him. Talk about literal draining. Jesus got drained. Jesus got tired. How did Jesus deal with it? Well, he said things like this, Mark 6.31, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Jesus took intentional intermissions. He took Sabbaths. He was often not found by his apostles. They'd wake up in the morning. Where did Jesus go? Where is he? I don't know. Eventually, over three years' time, they would start to figure out if he wasn't with them, he was with his father. He was off on a mountain somewhere praying. Jesus, God in the flesh, glory in humanity, took Sabbath, rested on a physical level. But Sabbath also hits us on a spiritual level. For without Sabbath, we will die an eternal death. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4.9, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And then he says something interesting. He says, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. You ever come to a point where you're going to take some vacation time and you find yourself working harder the last couple of weeks before you go on vacation just so you can go? Well, that's a good picture of what I think he's talking about here. Be diligent. Be focused. Be watchful. Because the rest is coming, the true rest, the real rest, that perfect rest that God will bring to us is coming. Let's be diligent to enter into that. The Lord time and time, repetitively, again and again, calls His people back to Sabbath. But again, this is interesting to me. Sabbath is not just a picture of intermission. It's also a picture of salvation. For in the Hebrew, Sabbath, the word for Sabbath in the Hebrew means intermission, but in the Greek, it's an alliteration. The word in the Greek is sabbaton, but it doesn't just mean intermission. It means a significant period of worship and rest. By the time the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, was written, and the word Sabbath was translated then into the Greek, it had come to mean something incredibly significant. More than just one day a week, Sabbath was the idea of rest and worship, time spent focused on the Lord. Now, moving on, God is going to move into something else here, and it's giving. He's going to talk to the children of Israel about giving, and I think there are some really interesting principles that we can use here. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I was studying this, I I told my wife, I said, I wonder if I should save this one for a Sunday morning so that everyone can hear it. The reality is, well, 
couple of things. Number one, the giving at the bridge is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And this is not a church that needs to be told to give because it's a very giving fellowship. But number two, I also realize, you know, I, I don't want to be, especially with something like giving, we don't want to be the type of church that stands up and says, okay, let's, let's uh, see if we can maneuver people into tithes and offerings. So the beautiful thing here is I'm going to make an assumption. If you're here on Wednesday night, probably, probably you're already a faithful giver. It tends to go hand in hand with spiritual maturity. But there are some great principles here that you can see as we read on. Look at verse 4. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing, and I have that circled, a willing heart. Let him bring it as the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and porpoise skins, or sea cows, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephods, and for the breastpiece. Bring all of these things, a couple things to jot down. There is no pain in godly giving. There is no pain in godly giving. You will be hard-pressed to find anywhere in Scripture where the Lord says, where God says, give till it hurts. Now, you may have heard that in a sermon, but you wouldn't hear it from the Lord because God has no interest in people who don't want to give willingly. There is no pain in godly giving. The Greek word, by the way, for cheerful, in 2 Corinthians 9-7, we read that verse to you. Paul says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Some of you may have heard this, but the word for cheerful in the Greek is absolutely hilarious. It actually is. It's hilarion, which is where we get our word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Someone who cannot wait for the place. Someone who's looking forward for the opportunity just to give. His money is burning a hole in his Bible. He cannot wait to give it to the Lord. It's the kind of person who is, they can't wait for the play, check, check rip and get to giver. Someone who is so excited, they're hilarious. Have you ever seen that, by the way? I've yet to see it in a church where someone was going, all right. You know, wouldn't that be great if people were slam dunking? We don't even do giving that way because we want it to be between you and the Lord. And so it is between you and the Lord. And if you're visiting, we just have a box in the back. People give as they will. And again, it's amazing how how generous this fellowship really is. One of the funniest things just happened. Hayden... Hayden and his allowance. He's eight years old. Now, I have an eight-year-old, and I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and they all get an allowance. Now, the 13 and the 15-year-old are on kind of a different program because we're trying to teach them to save. Now, all three of our kids, we have a kind of a program for, but, but Hayden, you know, he's eight. So when he gets into his allowance, he wants to spend the whole thing on a whim. Go for it. Eight years old, he should. He wants to walk into a candy store and take, you know, 10, 15 bucks and just slap it down and come home with a bag full. That's fine. He wants to buy stuffed animals, G.I. Joe's, whatever. He's eight years old. Be a kid. Buy a cape. Wear it to church on Sunday, which some of you have seen him do. But Hayden, Hayden was with Cheryl the other day. They went to the movies. And after the movie, they had a little bit of extra time. And so they were over by Target. And Hayden said, Mom, I got my allowance. Can we go to Target? <laughs> okay, so they go to Target. And she goes, now, Hayden, remember, you said you were really hoping that you wanted to save up. 
Now he just watched his older brother save up for a rather large purchase, and so he's kind of starting to get this idea of saving. And Cheryl said, "You want to save up?" And he said, "Well, yeah. I, I, can we just? I just want to look in the toys." And he comes out holding GI Joe. Okay. Well, then, and actually, that was before the movie. After the movie, then they went into a toy store in the mall. And Hayden found a bionicle that he really wanted. Well, his allowance was gone. Spent the whole thing. And both times, Cheryl said, Now, are you sure you want to do this? You told me you wanted to save it. No, 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 Mom, this is great. And he buys it. Well, they're about halfway home driving back from Mount Vernon. Cheryl says she's driving along. The music's playing. It's kind of quiet. And Hayden's back there with his, his two toys. <laughs> and he goes, Mom? Yes, Hayden? Next time I get my allowance and I want to spend it, talk me out of it. (laughs) I love the boy. If you are not able to cheerfully give, don't do it at all. Can I just say that as, as a pronouncement as the pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, if you can't give joyfully, don't do it. God doesn't want you to. If you can't give hilariously, sometimes you have to. You're looking at the checkbook and go, well, I'm just going to do it. Whatever. Take care of me, Lord. Woo-hoo. But don't do it. There was no pain in Israel's giving. Look at verse 10. Let every skillful man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, and its covering, its hooks, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the ark and its poles, the mercy seat, the, the curtain of the screen. And the table and its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence and the lampstand also for the light of its utensils and its lamps and oil for the light. He goes on and says, The altar of incense, its poles, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the screen for the doorway at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering and its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands. The hangings of the court, its pillars, its sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords. The woven garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest. And the garments of his sons to minister to the priest. And Moses, by the way, didn't say here... Here's what the Lord wants you to give, and we're going to stay here till we've gotten every last shekel. He tells everybody what it's for. Here's what we're going to do. Check this out. We have an awesome thing here the Lord is calling us to do. And it's going to take some contribution. And then, with everybody in rapt attention, he passed the badge. That's not what happened. Look at the next verse. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. Second thing to jot down, there is no pressure in godly giving. There's no pressure. They all went home. Moses gave them the vision. And what's great, by the way, about giving, and people who begin to give in their church and begin to see things happen understand this, that you become involved in the process. God purposed that the tabernacle would be built by the people. By His design, by His exact specifications, but the tabernacle would be theirs. It would come from their generosity. They would have, can we say, ownership of it, of this fantastic construction. But there was no pressure in it. They gave because their hearts were stirred, not because the plate was coming around and the preacher was coming down. They just gave willingly. No pain in godly giving. No pressure in godly giving. And honestly, I think the only thing worse than not giving at all is giving grudgingly. And in both cases, you're denying yourself great joy. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. And he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. How did he know that? Because it was obvious. 
You know, they were all making, obviously, a show. Jesus knew what was going on. He saw what they were putting in. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to about a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. That's hilarious giving. Do you think God knew what this sweet widow needed to live on, by the way? When she dumped all that she had into the temple treasury, do you think the Lord knew and already had a plan for providing and taking care of her needs? Of course He did. Of course He did. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything. Why, Lord? For all liberality. In other words, God is going to give you more as you give more so you can give more. As you give, God increases so you can give more. So He increases more so you can give more. It's a circle. It goes round and round. You cannot, you've heard this, I'm sure, cannot outgive God. And I have some close friends who have given it a shot. And He just keeps blessing. And it's almost embarrassing. You give and you give and He gives more. You can't outpace God when it comes to generosity. And by the way, he says you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Look at verse 22. Then all those whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. And so did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Verse 24. Every one who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. Verse 25. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers, verse 27, well hang on, wait a minute for the rulers. We'll get to them in just a second. Number three, there is no peculiarity in godly giving. In other words, godly giving is not just for certain individuals or certain kinds of people or certain types. It's not for rich over poor or poor over rich. It's not for male over female. There is no peculiarity. All giving is from whoever's heart is stirred. The men gave, the women gave, and they gave everything. All that they had, precious metals and materials and linens and oils and spices and even abilities. And then verse 27, we see the leaders, the leaders gave the most. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for the setting and the ephod and for the breastpiece. And the spice and the oil for the light and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. The leaders brought a ton of stuff. The leaders brought the most. There's an understanding here and that is simply this. 
that a fellowship of believers will never grow beyond the maturity of its leaders. And so for a fellowship to grow, its leaders need to purpose to be growing themselves. To lead out in things like service. To lead out in things like giving. I'll never forget this. It was a night at a church I worked at several years ago. And at this particular church, there was an elders meeting happening. And and I, I heard the elders meeting going on. I was a youth pastor at the time. And I was downstairs. And upstairs, this elders meeting was happening. And I, I heard it going on. Which wasn't because the walls were paper thin, but because there was some anger involved. What the senior pastor had done was the church was about to enter into this giving campaign. Some of you may have been involved with those. Those are loads of fun. You know, talk about pressure and pain. Gotta give. Sign up. Gotta give. Well, this was about to go on. And so the senior pastor was challenging the elders. And he had gone and gotten the giving records of all the elders. And he just handed them to each one of them individually so they could see exactly what they had or had not given. And there were two or three of the elders in that group who hadn't given a cent that year. Now, I, to this day, I don't know who those particular elders were. But I happen to know that they hadn't given because when it all kind of broke loose and two or three of the elders came stomping out and drove away, (laughs) the senior pastor came down and asked him what happened. He said, well, they didn't like what they weren't giving. They didn't like it being made known. They didn't like that we talked about that. Leaders need to be givers. That's just the bottom line. Now, we have a standard at the bridge, and that's that none of the leaders know what anybody gives. Which means I don't know what any of our elders give, and none of our elders know what each other gives, and none of our members know what the elders give who don't know what the members give who don't know what the... Nobody knows what we give. But God does. And it affects and it impacts our hearts. It does. And so we see here the leaders are giving the most of all. And to anyone, by the way, who has a desire to lead, just realize that a Christian leader is never exempt or above or apart from the people, whether it's in Bible study, service, love, giving. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus says, for those who have been given more, more is expected. More is expected. There was only one constant in all of this giving, by the way. Skip down to chapter 36, verse 3. We'll come back up in just a second. But chapter 36, verse 3. It tells us that they received from Moses all the contributions which the Son of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Note the phrase, free will offerings. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, I believe it's the only one like it in all of history. A proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary, thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material which they had brought was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. They were giving too much to the point that the workers came to Moses and said, Tell them to stop. And Moses said, Okay, proclamation, no more giving. And I believe, again, the only time it's ever happened. That was the one constant in all of Israel, gang. There is passion in godly giving. They were giving passionately. They couldn't stop themselves. Every morning, free will offerings. And you, can, you might say, well, Rick, I know why. This happened right after the golden calf incident. They were all guilty. They all felt like they had to give. They were all so ashamed of themselves that they just kept giving, hoping that God would eventually forgive them. I don't think so. 
I don't think so at all. In fact, I used to joke about this, that, you know, saying no wonder the people gave so much. They just got by, you know, by the skin of their teeth. They're thankful that God didn't just destroy them. But there is some beauty in this. I believe it was the golden calf incident and the Lord's loving kindness and forgiving them that motivated them to give so generously. Jesus told a parable. Luke chapter 7 verse 41. He said, A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them will love him more? Well, obviously the one who is forgiven more. And in the same passage, Jesus says, She who has been forgiven much, loves much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. There is a direct correlation between your understanding of God's loving kindness and your attitude toward giving. And I'll put it this way. Show me a person who has a hard time with generosity. Show me a person who gets uncomfortable when the plates are passed. Show me a person who sits in the back and sweats it out whenever the pastor is talking about giving, and I will show you a person who does not understand the law of supply and demand. What do you mean by that? The law of supply and demand. Knowing the source of my supply and recognizing the demand of the punishment for my sin that Jesus paid fully at the cross. God supplies my every need. What do I even care when it comes to giving? It's His money anyway. He gave it to me. He's the provider. He is the source of my supply. And the demands for my punishment were so great that it cost His Son His very life, His blood at the cross. Supply, I've got it. Demand, I was protected from it. When I understand that, giving takes on a whole different meaning. Now, moving from giving, we go to gifts. Go back to Exodus 35, verse 30. Exodus 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding and in craftsmanship, in knowledge and in all craftsmanship. Hang on just a second. Okay. And in all craftsmanship. Verse 32. To make designs for the working in gold and in silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He has also put in his heart to teach, both he and Oholiab, the son of Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material, in fine linen, and of a weaver, as performers of every work and makers of designs. Now, we've already met these two guys previously, Bezalel and Oholiab, but I want to remind you of something in this passage, something we need to, to recall. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has not limited the spiritual gifts to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, or Ephesians 4. What do you mean? We have specific gifts that are listed in those passages in the Bible. Specific things that the Holy Spirit gives us. And we have gone so far as to come up with spiritual gifts inventories and all kinds of ways of measuring our spiritual gifts and figuring out which of these particular gifts we have. But Bezalel and Oholiab were gifted men. Read again verse 31. God filled them with the Spirit of God. In wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship. And I just need to ask, who is it that talks about the spiritual gift of the smithy? 
or the stonecutter? Who talks about the gift of the carver or the mechanic or the painter or the plumber? Who says, wow, that's really his gift? And yet, isn't it possible that that may be? That God gifts in ways that don't come across as maybe the big spiritual, upfront, obvious ways? The gift of the glass cutter? The gift of one who, who has certain abilities in certain areas? And they're able to use those abilities. Is it not possible that God gifts in other ways? James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. And Colossians 3.17, Paul writes, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. So here's the principle. If you're a plumber, plumb for the Lord. If you're a bus driver, drive for Jesus. If you're a nurse, care for the Lord. But there's something else interesting here, that these gifted men were not only gifted for the work of the Lord, they were also gifted to teach others. Verse 34, he put it in his heart to teach. He gave them not only the gift, but the desire to share that gift as well. It's the passing on of the gift, and that is how the church is to function. Not to hold on to our gifts tightly, to enjoy them just for ourselves or maybe just for our family, but to share them with the body. To maybe grab someone else and share and teach them your gift, what you can do for the Lord, pass on to someone else. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 tells us, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And that is the purpose of the church. That's it. That's why the church exists. What was that? I missed it. To equip. To equip. To be a place where people are equipped, trained up. You know, there's confusion over church styles in the world today. People talk about Bible study churches. People talk about seeker churches or worship-oriented churches or mission churches or social churches. The bottom line is God has called every one of His fellowships to be equipped, to be trained up to the measure of the fullness of Christ. And we so often get into it. It's funny, and I, I, I hope it's not one of you, but, but somebody actually came up to one of our elders a couple weeks ago and said, hey, I think I'm going to start coming to the bridge. And he said, great, well, why is that? Well, the word on the street is you're a discipleship church. You're a teaching church. And, I, you know, I've, I've, I've had the seeker stuff. Now I'm ready for the teaching stuff. And I kind of think, you know what? I think the perfect place for a seeker is the place where the Bible is being taught. In depth. As a matter of fact, it's a... Uh, oh, what's, what's his name? Oh, I forget his name. A pastor who, who made the comment that the best place to start with someone who's a brand new Christian is the book of Revelation. <laughs> what? Yeah. Start them off in the toughest book of the Bible. Why? Take them deep right away. There are other reasons for that, by the way. If you study Revelation, you find out that it shoots you all over the Bible. And by the time you're done studying Revelation, you've pretty much studied the whole Bible anyway. But, you know, all these distinctions between styles and flavors of churches and guys just saying, dang, Worship me. Study my words. Love each other. Become equipped. Grow. It's really quite simple. You could even do it in a barn. So whatever you can do, do it for the Lord and pass it along to someone else. Chapter 36, verse 8. 
chapter 36, verse 8. So all the skillful men among those who were performing the work made the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen. Remember, that was, would have been a white material, and blue and purple and scarlet material. So white, blue, purple, scarlet. We talked about what those indicate. With cherubim, the work of a skillful workman, Bezalel, made them. Now, again, these curtains, you may recall, were very specifically colored. The color choices, the choices of God, and these colors, for various different reasons, point to and portray and picture Jesus Christ. I'll just give you one reason why they do. If you look at those colors, these would be the colors that you would have seen on Jesus on the cross. Fine twisted linen, white, his bones would show through his flesh. Blue, like the bruises, and purple, like the bruises on his forehead. Scarlet, the red blood that was pouring down his face. But there's so much in these colors that portrays Jesus. And as a matter of fact, and we're going to run through this now, so get ready, put on your Bible belts. Jesus is all over the tabernacle for the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. Every, everything about the tabernacle portrays Christ in one way or another. Its layout, its materials, its furniture, its implements are one huge portrait of our Savior Jesus Christ who as John 1.14 tells us, tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Now we've taken a good amount of time in recent months scrutinizing and studying the tabernacle. We've looked at the outer courtyard. We've looked at the holy place and the holy of holies. And now it's being constructed curtain by curtain and tenon by tenon, rod by rod, bar, bar by bar. And again, why is it all being repeated? Because there's reinforcement and revelation and repetition. God wants us to learn and to relearn the person of Jesus Christ. So here we go. We're going to move really quick here. Verses 8 through 19. 8 through 19 talk about the curtains and the coverings. The curtains and the coverings, pictures of Jesus. Again, that twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. And the length and all these things. They made the loops for him. And they made 50 loops and 50 clasps of gold. And then verse 14, he made curtains of goat's hair. Now, we have two different curtains here so far. First curtains are the, the colorful ones, the linen, blue, purple, and scarlet ones. Those would have been on the inside of the tabernacle, and the only people who ever would have seen them were those who could go inside. It was beautiful on the inside, as it is with Christ. Sometimes on the outside, people look at Christians, or look at Christianity, or look at Jesus, and on the outside, they're not too sure. On the outside, when Jesus walked on the face of the earth, he was a plain, common man. There was nothing in his face to attract people to him, the Bible says. Nothing special about the way he looked. Common. But on the inside, as you get to know Jesus, he becomes more and more beautiful. Well, that first curtain, linen, blue, purple, scarlet material, but the second curtain was a curtain of goat's hair, down in verse 19, it tells us the third covering was a covering for the tent that was ram skin dyed red, and the fourth covering was the porpoise skins above. Well, that second covering, the covering of goat hair that you read about there in verse 14, was likely black. Because many of the goats at that time would have been black furred animals or black skin, and so the goat hair would have been a black covering that would have gone over that beautiful covering, the first covering for the tabernacle. Now you've got the black goat hair over that. It's a picture, my friends, of sin. And the very next thing that goes over it are ram skins dyed red, reminding us again of the crimson blood of Jesus that covers our sins. 
And then over that, the corpus scans were the skin of the sea cow. Well, what's that? It's a tough, leathery substance that was strong. It was protective. And it could get beaten down just as Jesus was beaten down. And yet, it would protect the tabernacle and that which was inside. So we have the coverings. Verse 20 tells us that he made the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. The boards. All the way down to verse 34 talks about the boards. But I want you to see something as we pass through here quickly. The boards. We talked about this one night several weeks ago. The boards are a picture of the church. And not because the church is bored. Okay? But there's a picture in here of the church. Why is that? Why would you say that? Because the boards, first of all, were acacia wood. They were, they were common wood. Of course, they were covered over in gold, but they sat in sockets of silver. And silver in the Bible, as many of you students, you know this, silver is the, is the metal of redemption. These boards sat in sockets of redemption. The boards held each other up. And there's a really cool picture of these boards being similar to the body of Christ or the church. If you study it down, and I'd encourage you if, you, if you haven't done that, to do that. To look at the boards and consider them. But there's something interesting here. Look at verse 31. It says, Then he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle. Five bars of acacia wood. Well, in this picture of the church and what that looks like, what might those bars be? Five bars. If there's something in the scripture that we can find as we study through that gives us that, that number five that might relate to the church. Well, back to Ephesians 4 verse 11, it tells us that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. Five bars that God has given the church to hold the church up, to help the church in its building, to equip the saints, as Paul writes, for the building up of the body. The bars, picture this perfectly, gifts given to the church to build and support the body of Christ. We're going on, verse 35. Verse 35 talks about the veil. He made the veil. Who remembers what the veil represented? This is one we didn't have to guess about at all because the Bible tells us explicitly what the veil of the tabernacle really was. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil, by God's design of the tabernacle, the veil that you would have to go through to get into the holiest place, that veil was a picture of the flesh of Christ Jesus. The veil. Well, then the next thing you see is the screen. He made the screen for the doorway of the tent. Verse 37, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. Well, what's the deal with the screen for the door? Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We go through Christ's flesh to get to the holy place. We go through the door, which is Christ, to find salvation at all. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. Now, in chapters 37 and 38, we see the construction of the tabernacle furnishings around which the entire tabernacle was placed. By the way, it was interesting. When the Jews headed out, the process for moving out was as follows. God at first would lift the cloud of his glory, that Shekinah glory of the Father. He would lift off and start moving. And that was the symbol that the people were to head out. The next thing to move out of the camp of Israel was the Ark of the Covenant. 
the priests would take those acacia wood poles surrounded by gold they'd put it into the poles the holes on the side of the, of the Ark of the Covenant lift it up and they would begin to carry it on out they would carry the Ark of the Covenant following that when they got a certain distance away about 10 football fields then the rest of Israel was to up and follow when the Shekinah glory of God stopped that great pillar of cloud when he stopped the Ark of the Covenant was taken and placed directly beneath that cloud and then the tabernacle was set up around it the first thing to go on the ground was the Ark of the Covenant and then the building was placed all around that I find that interesting that the Ark had such a place of prominence and of course the Ark is the first piece of furniture mentioned chapter 37 verse 1 now Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia wood its length was two and a half cubits and its width was one and a half cubits and its height was one and a half cubits as well and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and he made a, a pure gold molding for it all around that pure gold the centerpiece of the tabernacle the centerpiece the Ark of the Covenant in and of itself when we studied this prior was the picture of Jesus the ultimate picture of Jesus in all of the tabernacle the centerpiece the heart of the tabernacle that acacia wood wrapped in gold the picture of humanity wrapped in deity verse 6 tells us then he made a mercy seat of pure gold two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide the mercy seat then would sit directly on top of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was considered a separate piece of furniture even though it was connected it was the top the lid for the ark but it was a separate piece of furniture in and of itself it was a throne if you will the mercy seat over which the cherubim hover just like the throne of mercy over which the cherubim hover in the bible with Jesus in the middle of the throne Revelation chapter 4 verses 5 through 11 describe that beautiful scene cherubim hovering above the throne the mercy seat with the cherubim on top of it and Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may find receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need verse 37 or chapter 37 verse 10 verse 10 going on then he made the table of acacia wood two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high do you remember what the table was for what sat on top of the table it actually had a longer name it was the table of show bread the table of show bread that was the next piece that was constructed after the ark of the covenant and in the mercy seat the third one was the table of show bread and we know that Jesus Jesus is the bread of life this unleavened showbread prefiguring his sinless body that would be given up for us John chapter 6 verse 53 Jesus says truly truly I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in yourselves he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him and that was hard teaching even some of his own disciples at this point turned and walked away and said that's too tough for me I can't listen to that that's cannibalism I, I, I can't hear any more of this teaching it was too much I love what happened Jesus turned to the, the apostles remember this and said do you guys want to go too? there's the door it's wide open this is the truth unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no part of me unless you're willing to walk down this path unless you're willing to follow me all the way up the hill you have no part of me and Peter said Lord where are we going to go 
You alone have the words of life. Where else could we possibly go? Well, Jesus is the bread. The table of showbread, showing us that, prefiguring it ahead of time. Exodus chapter 37, verse 17. 17 says he made the lampstand of pure gold. Reading all the way down to verse 24, it talks about the lampstand with seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. The lampstand is again a picture of Jesus. How so? Because Jesus is the light of the world, he said in John 8:12. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we talked about how the lampstand also reveals His Holy Spirit. Pictures as, or pictured as intimately connected to the church. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is seen by John walking among the seven lampstands which portray the church, which also portray the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus' Spirit, the lampstand that would light up the inside of the tabernacle. Well, the fifth piece of furniture is the altar of incense, verse 25. The altar of incense was of acacia wood. It was a cubit long and a cubit wide square and two cubits high. It was a little altar. Its horns were of one piece with it. It was overlaid with pure gold, its top and its sides around and its horns. And he made a gold molding for it all around. And incense in the Bible is that picture of intercessory prayer. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He is our intercessory prayer warrior. And we also as a body, of, uh, as a fellowship, are called to intercede for one another to the Lord who is interceding for us. The altar of incense. Well, Exodus chapter 38 verse 1 says then he made and this is now the sixth piece of furniture he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood and he overlaid this with bronze so no longer gold now you're coming out by the way those pieces that we saw so far come from the inside out in the tabernacle the ark of the covenant in the holiest place and then stepping out into the holy place the, the next holy place not as holy as the inside but one step out a place where ministry happens you have the altar of incense you've got the table of showbread and the lampstand all also of pure gold but then you come outside and there are two more pieces of furniture the first being the bronze altar of burnt offering and it was covered over in bronze and it is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ why? Because bronze in the Bible is the metal of judgment. And by the way, if you want to test your metal, it cannot stand against the bronze metal of judgment unless Jesus takes it for you. And so Jesus said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that bronze serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Jesus says that serpent, that bronze serpent, is a picture of me on the cross. You might say, well, wait a minute. A serpent? A serpent is a picture of Jesus? I thought a serpent was a picture of Satan, or at least a picture of sin and evil in the world. Absolutely. Because that's exactly what Jesus became on the cross. When he was lifted up, he was sin on the cross. He was that picture of wickedness and evil. And all the wrongdoing and suffering of mankind on the cross. That serpent is the perfect picture of what happened at Calvary. By the way, I don't know if you've heard this or knew this, but the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice, has been reconstructed. It is built, and it is in a hidden place being kept safe in Israel by a society of of Israelis who are planning the rebuilding of the temple. So it's waiting. In fact, just about everything that's needed is there. Interesting, just about two and a half years ago, a red heifer was found to be without blemish. 
And a red heifer, which is rather rare, is what's needed, the blood of a red heifer, to sanctify the things inside the temple. And the Jews have always thought of the red heifer as being a sign that Messiah is going to come. Interesting. Things are going on. Well, Exodus chapter 38, verse 8 tells us, Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The, the women said, okay, we're not going to worry about how we look anymore. <laughs> we're going to give it for the washing of the priests. Forget the mirrors, take them away, we don't need them anyway. You know, what are you going to do? You're wandering in the desert. Who really wants to look into a mirror? So they give them to Moses. And they are used for the bronze labor. And the priests were washed there, which foreshadows this wonderful truth. The royal priesthood, that is the church, would be washed by Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26. He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present himself to the church in all her glory. Well chapter 38 verse 9 Running all the way until verse 20 is a picture of the making of the court. Now, verse 21. See how fast we're moving? Is this great? We come to verse 21, but we see something of the cost of this simple yet marvelous structure. Verse 21. This is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moses for the servant of the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Now, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. With him was Oholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman and a weaver in blue and in purple and scarlet material and fine linen. Now listen, all the gold that was used for the work, in all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold and the wave offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A bika ahead, that is, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 21 years old and upwards for 603,550 men. So each one of them had to get a half shekel, 603,550 of those. The hundred talents of silver were for the casting of the sockets for the sanctuary, the sockets of the veil, the sockets for the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. Of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. The bronze of, of the wave offering was 70 talents and was 2,400 shekels. And with it he made the sockets for the doorway, the tent of meeting, and the bronze altar and its bronze grating and utensils, the sockets of the cord around and the sockets of the gates of the cord and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court all around. Needless to say, they had a lot of stuff. This was very valuable. As a matter of fact, it's been said that the cost of the tabernacle has been estimated as being a billion dollars when it was all said and done. In gold, in silver, in bronze, in costly materials, a billion dollars by today's standards. Now, where would they come up with a billion dollars worth of riches and materials? Well, remember God made sure they had them when they left Egypt. He plundered the Egyptians and they took the wealth and the riches of Egypt. Why? So that they could be given for the work of the tabernacle. The tabernacle gang was magnificent, but the cost of the tabernacle doesn't even compare to the cost of the precious blood of Christ. 
The gold for the tabernacle represented deity, silver representing redemption, bronze representing judgment, and together these metals speak of the redeeming sacrifice of deity on the cross at Calvary. And 1 Peter 1.18, Peter said, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Blood of Christ. There's your values. Chapter 39, verse 1. Moreover, from the blue and the purple and the scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for the ministering in the holy place as well well as for the holy garments which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Aaron and the priest, but specifically Aaron, had very special garments that were made. He had an ephod of gold, verse 2. He had a skillfully woven band, verse 5. Verse 7 says he, he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. By the way, this is interesting and a reminder. On each one, of the high priest's shoulders were onyx stones and on those stones were written six on one side and six on the other the names of the sons of Israel. Why? Because the high priest bore their names on his shoulders. It was a picture that he would bring their needs. He would intercede for them. He would be their intercessors. And their names were right there on his shoulders that he would carry them and bring them before the Lord. In the same way, all the precious stones, verse 10, on the breast piece, mounted four rows, rows of stones, and you can read what the rows were. They were beautiful, precious stones, and each one of these stones also corresponded to the sons of Israel. Each stone had a name of each one of the tribes. Why? Because not only would the sons of Israel be, would be on the shoulders of the high priest interceding for them, but on the heart of the high priest caring about them. And Jesus, our high priest, not only bore our sins on his back, but cares about us as a shepherd caring for his sheep. And so, verse 42, skipping on down, they make all the priestly garments. They're really nice to look at. And so this all done, the robe, verse 22. Uh, we saw this, and this is interesting, I'm sorry, verse 24 and 25, that around the bottom of the robe there were pomegranates and bells going back and forth. We talked about what those implied or what they were pictures of. The pomegranates, spiritual fruit, and the bells, spiritual gifts. And if you don't know that teaching, we can, we can get that to you later. But in verse 27, it says they made tunics, and then a turban and linen breeches and then they made a crown in verse 30 a plate of holy crown of pure gold inscribed holy to the Lord that was set on the top of a blue turban and all this was the high priest's uh, clothing what he wore and then verse 32 watch this verse 32 thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed was completed Skip on down to verse 42. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done. So Moses blessed them and God loves it when we do the work that he's commanded us to do. When we follow through, when we're listening to the Lord, He says, do this, and we go, okay, it makes no sense to me, but I will. I'll do it. Whatever you say, Lord, and Noah, Noah pleased the Lord in this way. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This pleases the Lord. This pleases him in great ways. Well, chapter 40, the last chapter of the book. We're almost done. Hang with me just a few more minutes, if you will, tonight. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. 
first day of the first month. If you read back in scripture, what this tells us is approximately one year after leaving Egypt, they set up the tabernacle. They would spend three months moving from Egypt to Mount Sinai, or Horeb, crossing the Red Sea, running one day to the next, trying to stay away from the Egyptian army, but finally saved through the Red Sea, and after three months they would arrive at Horeb. They would spend approximately three more months at Mount Horeb, with a couple of 40-day stints with Moses up on the mountain, some time in between, and then the actual construction of the temple would take them about six months. So now we're a year since they left Egypt, and the Bible tells us that Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. Skip on down. Verse 16, Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Verse 17, now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Verse 20, then he took the testimony and he put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded him. He put the table of showbread in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle. That is, as you're going in, it would be on the right, outside of the veil. And he set the arrangement of the bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side, or on the left side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. That would be the altar of incense. He lights the incense that begins to burn there. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the labor, again for washing, between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. Now again, if you hadn't heard this, here's the picture. You would walk into the tabernacle. So walking toward me, the first thing you would see is the bronze altar of sacrifice. The next thing behind that would be the bronze laver for washing. You go inside to the holy place, and to one side you would have the golden lampstand, to the other side the table of showbread, and then straight forward the altar of incense, and then into the holiest place, the Ark of the Covenant. And it's interesting that the pieces of furniture were arranged in the shape of a cross as you came into the sanctuary. But verse 33 tells us he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. He got her done. He finished it up. It was all finished. It was complete. It is finished. Noah finished the work. God said build the ark and he did exactly as he was commanded. He finished the work. Nehemiah finished the work. God said go back to Israel. Rebuild the wall for Jerusalem. And he did it and they finished it. Nehemiah chapter 6 tells us. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7. Paul said I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And of course most famous of all John 19 verse 30. Jesus cried it is finished. He finished the work. And what happened after the redemptive work of the cross was finished? After Jesus' resurrection and after his ascent back up to heaven, what was the next thing on God's agenda? It was the Holy Spirit. 
It was the glory of God filling the, the apostles, filling the, the tents of the apostles, the dwelling places that they were, their own physical tabernacle bodies. And that's exactly what happens here. Verse 34 tells us, Then, after Moses finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel. Beautiful. The work was finished and the glory came down, filling the tabernacle. But gang, it was for the purpose of accompanying the people on their real journey, which was the journey home. Don't forget this, the tabernacle was a temporary temple. And for all the glory of God filling that temple, it was temporary. It was not home. Mount Horeb was not the final resting place for Israel. The promised land was. And though they had taken a year from leaving the gloom of Egypt to come into the glory of God filling the temple, yes, a year had passed and it was a long and arduous year. But they were headed home after this. They were going to the promised land. And if not for their faithlessness, it would not have been long. A few weeks perhaps, and they would have been in the promised land. They would have been home, but they were faithless in between. But that's another story for another time. I want you to understand this though. The work was finished. The job was complete, just as it was by Jesus on the cross. And yet the journey was not over. The journey continued. And we know this with the first four words of Leviticus chapter 1, the next book, which reads, Then the Lord called. Time to go. Let's go, gang. The journey continues. And our journey through Scripture and life will continue, Lord willing, as we get into the call of the Lord this coming Sunday with Leviticus chapter 1. Let's all stand together and we'll have prayer. And we'll be finished tonight. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of your word and for this great book that we have unbelievably, after almost a year, Father, we have finished. And we close the book of Exodus with great thanksgiving for all that you have shown us. Father, I, I close this book absolutely amazed. I did not honestly expect to see so much of Jesus. And yet, he's everywhere. And I am so blessed personally, Father, and we are blessed together to see him in all of these things. And to realize, Lord, that Jesus wasn't an afterthought. That the, the, the sacrifice of salvation, that Calvary, the cross, the whole nine yards, Father, it was not an afterthought. This wasn't plan B. But to know that even back with the construction of the tabernacle for the Jewish people, you already had a plan in place. You were already foreshadowing that which was to come. You were already laying the groundwork, not for yourself, you knew, Father, but for us. So that we might look back in the study of these things and know that your love is that great. Your plan that vast. Your, your ideas drawing all, back, all the way back, Father, to the ancient days. And it is not hard to imagine or to know. Father, it's not hard to believe that before you spoke the first words of creation, you had in mind our salvation. 
And so we thank you so much for these things. I pray that this is a blessing for all of us, that we will take it, we will consider it, and that you will not let your word depart from our hearts. Hide it deep within our hearts, Father. As we go to our separate homes tonight, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.